0: I'd love for you guys to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. If you have a church Bible, it's page 1479. It'd be helpful to have your Bible open. I'm going to read the the story in three segments uh, throughout the message, so we won't read the whole thing up front. But I'd love to read these first five verses. that uh, When Jesus has just arrived onto the shore, the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, And uh, we know that the story we just read was of him crossing the sea, and as they cross, they hit this enormous storm, and uh, the disciples are afraid for their lives. Jesus, they wake him up, he's asleep, and as they wake him up, he rebukes the sea, he rebukes the wind, he he calms the whole thing down, and so, you know, it was that Superman moment when he kind of reveals who he is to his disciples, and um, they make it safely across, and they begin... Uh, To step out onto the shore and this is what happens. We'll just read the first five verses It says they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the gerasenes And when jesus had stepped out of the boat immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit He lived among the tombs And no one could bind him anymore not even with a chain for he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, but he'd wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Let me just pray then. Father, we, uh, want, to, we want to approach your word with the kind of reverence that's appropriate when we seek to gaze upon Jesus and understand him better. I pray, Lord, knowing that there's a huge spectrum in this room of those who are, uh, some who are skeptics, all the way through to those of us who've known you for some years, Lord. We want to uh, find nourishment, challenge, wherever we're at. And pray that the Holy Spirit will be here now with us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I am just mentioning to you those, um, these two these two stories, which come back to back, and we dealt last week with the, the account of Jesus hitting this, being caught up in the storm. And one of the things that's striking about these two stories is how they actually have these amazing, they're kind of parallels. And actually, this happens. I haven't really been showing you this stuff, but this happens all the way through Mark's gospel. It's obviously a crafted and thoughtful account because he's so deliberate in the way that he um, tells his story and shows all these literary parallels and echoes that run through all the gospel. And this is just one of those. You see, on the one hand, there was a storm on a lake outside of, outside of uh, their, their, their themselves. And then you, you encounter this man that we're, we're just meeting in this story. And there's a storm inside him. Um, a tor- torment of mind and of soul, which we're going to think about and consider. And Jesus then asserts his lordship, firstly over the creation when he's on the sea. He is demonstrating that creation bows to his word and to his will. And so he's revealing who he is by his word. And then, of course, he does the same thing here, as we'll discover in this story, but not his, so much his lordship over creation around us, but rather over, over the spirits and over evil. He's the one who commands and, and things submit and have to bow to him. And then the same result happens in both these stories. On the one hand, there's fear among the disciples when they suddenly realize we're in a boat with somebody who's more terrifying than the storm we were just in. The same thing happens, as we'll see in this story, when Jesus heals this man. And the result actually is that people around in the region become terrified, like what is going on and who is this man who's just arrived? Now, the first thing that's going to strike you as we dig into this is the strangeness of what's happening. Especially when you're looking at it with 21st century um, eyes that are shaped by the secular world in which we live. You look at an account like this and it talks about him having an unclean spirit and of this, uh, the wildness of his life. And the first thing that you wonder is how odd and how weird this is and how are we meant to understand this? How do we map this onto our experiences and it may be the case that you have no category for spiritual realities. That if I talk about demons and evil spirits and this kind of thing, then to you that might feel like something from a fantasy or something from medieval uh, paintings, but not something that actually has any relevance to our lives in this day and age. And I, I want to I mention a couple of things at the outset because I recognize that if we're going to have any chance of understanding anything out of this passage, if this is a big stumbling block to you, like, I can't see past this issue, it just seems like fantasy to me, then let me just mention a couple of things at the outset that will help you. One thing I'd say is that I think, and this goes some way to explaining why this kind of thing isn't so commonplace for us to witness in in our day, is that I think there's something about Jesus that flushes out, brings into the open these spiritual realities that are there around us all of the time, but maybe more concealed. And we, we, we saw this a little bit earlier in Mark's gospel. Jesus goes to worship on a Saturday. It was you know, the Sabbath day, just as we are here on a Sunday at church. He goes to church, and it tells us that when, um, when he's there just worshiping with everybody, it says immediately there was in the syn- their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cries out, what have you to do with us, Jesus, son of Nazareth? So, you know, you could imagine, and I actually have seen this, by the way, but it's not so common, is it, that you have people who are just regularly part of a church gathering, a worship gathering, and then something happens one one day, and you think, well, there's an outburst, there's a verbal outburst, there's some kind of, there can be shrieking, there can be something terrifying happening, and what is it about Jesus that brings this into the open? Why is it this... This guy who's been going to his church all his life suddenly reacts when Jesus is in the room. And I think it has to do with the presence of this man, the Son of God, here with us. I don't know if you, when you were kids, we had um, a dentist come to school when we were kids and hand out those little tablets that... Expose the plaque on your teeth. Do you remember them? You, you, you chew the thing, and then you end up with bright pink all over your gums. You smile at each other as kids, and it's hilarious. But it actually shows, it's revealing something really bad and destructive in your mouth that you didn't know was there. Or another analogy, think of, when I was a kid, we used to go to a place just outside Winchester called uh, St. Catherine's Hill. Beautiful hill, view of the city, you climb up this thing, and it's covered in rabbit holes all over the place. And you see the little cute rabbits uh, running around, the bunnies. and then, But they're actually very destructive. But um, the, our friends had a little Jack Russell dog. And Jack Russells were bred for the purpose of hunting rabbits. They're just about the right size. that When you let one off the lead, it doesn't matter if this thing's never seen a rabbit before in its life. You let the thing off the lead, it dives down into the warrens, and rabbits just go... Crazy! They're running all over the hill. And this, you see the dog in and out of the holes. And you, there's no way you can get control of that dog at this point until it has blood, until it's tasted blood. And it maybe isn't the most helpful analogy here, but what I'm trying to show you, there's something about the presence of Jesus in the world that flushes things out and, and exposes stuff that was hidden that we didn't necessarily see. That's there all around us, but maybe it's less obvious to us in our day-to-day life. You know, you've seen the nature documentary. So there are these caves that exist where uh, you might be unaware as you go into a dark cave that the entire ceiling is covered with bats sleeping during the day. And uh, all you have to do is switch on a light. And it's terrifying. I mean, these things are, it's like the ceiling's alive with life. And Jesus is like that. He's the light who's come into the world. And his very presence seems to bring out um, the realities of the spiritual war that we exist in all of the time. That's one thing I'd say about it. Here's another thing I'd say about a story like this. I think that this man's behavior is actually much more recognizable than at first it might appear. He exhibits madness. He, it, he's self-harming, as you'll see. There's... Voices that come out of his mouth that don't seem to be him speaking, but rather some other power in control. And all of these things actually are very recognizable uh, within people in, even in our own city. People you may have met, people who often are locked away for their own protection. And so the odd thing is not that this stuff happened then, but doesn't happen now. The odd thing is rather that this stuff happens now and we don't see any spiritual explanation for the tragic circumstances that some people find themselves in. And especially when so much of the, you know, the very extreme examples of when people are tormented in heart and soul, that it's so often accompanied with deep evil, evil thoughts, evil suggestions, evil desires. that, that, as you see, become self-destructive and all these kinds of things. Now, I'm not trying to suggest to you, because I think these things are are much more complex than I understand. I'm not trying to suggest to you that everything that that, that happens that's bad in a person's mind is automatically the work of an evil spirit. But I think that these two worlds are much more integrated than any of us have really fully understand uh, or understood and it seems to me quite obvious that what we, the kind of phenomena that you see in the Gospels is not actually all that strange in the world in which we live in today. So, the big idea then is that Jesus wants to come in and deal with the evil in us and around us. And what we see in this story is a man who is a very extreme example of kind of towards the end of the trajectory of what happens when a person's life is given over to to darkness, essentially. In a sense, he's living a kind of an existence of hell on earth in the way that you you begin to recognize his experiences. This is really what Jesus said hell is like, the torment that he's experiencing. This man is at an extreme end of what what darkness does in, in us, in our own and what it, how it distorts our humanity. But everything that he experiences is as recognizable in our own personal experiences of what, it, what happens in our lives when our lives are, are given over to sin. These are the kinds of things I want us to see. And what Jesus wants for us, how he wants to bring freedom to your life and bring you from a place of torment, essentially, to a place of usefulness and of mission, which is what happens with this man. So I want us to first of all think about the misery of evil. And just looking at these early verses we read, you look at this man and what you see are the ravages of sin and of what evil spirits have done in his life. And I think they, they show themselves in, in three particular ways. The first is that he experiences isolation and aloneness. He's exiled from his community. He's naked, and he's living among the tombs, living among the dead, which was totally inappropriate for a Jewish person, given that the dead were understood to be unclean. But as I just mentioned to you, I think his his whole experience is meant to depict really a hell on earth for this man. And this is where we find him, totally isolated and alone. Another thing you see about him is that he's tormented in his mind. It says he was always crying out. And the third thing you see about him is that it, it, it leads to self-destruction and self-harm. It says he was cutting himself with stones. And the question is why. And what I want to help you to see is, actually this is the natural trajectory of where sin takes us to these results in our own lives. And I'll show you this in a moment. Of course, this, this has been massively exaggerated and intensified in this man's experience. Because what we discover is, that he's afflicted by not just a an evil spirit, but a whole what he calls a legion of spirits, which is about five thousand in Roman military. Um, it's a it's a it's a technical term. So this guy is in he's in an absolute abyss and an absolute mess. But none of us escape the same ill effects of sin in in our own lives. And let me show you this. You think about first of all how. Sin always leads to more isolation and, in fact, to your own experience, personal experience of exile when you live in it. The Bible teaches us that God is community. That if you wanted analogies to kind of picture the life of God, you think of a warm fire. You think of hearty laugh. You think of a pint of ale. You think of happiness. This is God's community, the center of his existence is Trinity. And the way he built his world was to reflect the beauty of love and of community. However, sin brings fracture. Sin is at the root of all, all human community fracture and isolation and loneliness. Always, 100% of the time. Sin leads to coldness. It leads to the exile, the rejection that you experience from others or that you uh, demonstrate towards others. There's a psalm that just puts it really... I'm going to read you more of this in a minute, but the psalm talks about um, his place of being in a real abyss of sin. And then he, he brings it to this point where he says, My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. I've seen, I've known people in my own life who have made such a mess of their lives, made such tragic decisions, selfish decisions, and I've seen how people around them just have moved away. I think of a story of, um, of a man I knew when I was young who was a pastor of a church, and he committed adultery with a woman who was lodging in their home. And when he, when it was it was uh, discovered, of course he lost his job, he also lost his family, and a number of years later, though he was restored in many senses that his, he was right with God again he 'd repented, and he wasn 't doing this stuff anymore, he died alone, found his body was found dead in isolation, cut off from the family that he 'd seen grow up into their teens and I just, everything about that story makes you just want to grieve about the power of sin, what sin does to our lives. This man in the story is an extreme example of this. But there is, we see this all around us. You think about how our culture has become very, um, you know, when people's bad choices get exposed in our day and age, what happens? Exile happens very quickly now, actually. Trial by social media. But it's the same thing. When people act in ways that we disapprove of, exile, isolation, extraction from the community. In fact, I I think that we're seeing the fruit of this in the world in which we live at large. We're living in 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 a cultural moment in which the basic... Wise decisions of what a righteous life looks like. We turned our back on those a long time ago. And we're now reaping the whirlwind in terms of people's experiences of isolation and loneliness on account of decisions that are fundamentally selfish. What is the message of our day and age? It is live, do what makes you happy. And yet there is so little happiness. Has that ever struck you as odd? That in a day and an age in which we have, we've almost written it in stone that this is the doctrine of our age. Do what makes you happy. Nevertheless, we seem less happy than ever before. And that ought to expose the problem, right? That sin and selfishness actually brings about an isolation and exile, which is common to all of our experiences, not just this man's. Think also about what I mentioned about his, the fact that he experiences torment, now, you, you'll recognize this immediately as I begin to describe this. That when, you are, when you're making decisions that you know are wrong, that your conscience tells you are wrong, you experience the same kind of mental and psychological torment that this man was experiencing, how he was always crying out. Because your conscience will not let up even if you choose to pursue your own ends. Going back to that psalm, it's the 38th psalm. I want to read you a few verses that describe this. Listen carefully to these words. He says, my iniquities, in verse 4, my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. So he describes, first of all, how he feels weighed down with a sense that he has made terrible choices. He says, my wounds, it's another metaphor, my wounds stink and fester. Have you ever smelled a wound that's going bad? I actually haven't. It's a genuine question, but I've heard they stink. Um, Thank God for antibiotics. But in the day and age where gangrene was common, my wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness, he says, I'm utterly bowed down. It's like his entire posture was affected by his experience of, of a heavy conscience. And then he puts it as far as this. He says, I'm prostrate, which means I'm on the floor on my face. All the day I go about mourning. My sides are filled with burning. I think he's describing a kind of gut level, like an indigestion, like a constant churning in his gut because he knows he's done wrong. He says, There's no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Oh Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me and the light of my eyes also has gone from me. He's describing a a broken man. And it's not just that your sin will isolate you, it's also that it will weigh heavily on your mind and reap havoc in your mental health and your psychological health and your spiritual health. It brings about the torment eventually. And if not now... (laughs) Because I think some people tend to have a thicker skin with these things. If not now, then eventually it will. And if not in this life, then certainly in the next. This man is a vivid picture of where sin takes you and where evil takes you. Another aspect I mentioned, of course, was that he, where he ends up is in self-destruction and self-harm. Why? And Why is that where we also end up when we follow this path? It's because of this. You think about the way the Bible paints the picture. It says, listen, God created a world that's good. And he put in the world the pinnacle of his creation, which is the image of himself in humankind. Now, since the devil's war is primarily with God himself, and and we are only secondary players in that. The easiest way for for the devil to make war against God is by damaging and destroying and harming God's glory on this earth, which is humankind. It's like, it's like wanting to smash the mirror. Or it's like you've probably heard and read in the history books stories of when nations have been conquered or overthrown. The first thing that happens is not just that the ruler himself will be deposed, but also that all his children will be slaughtered. It happened when the Romanovs were overthrown in the early 20th century in Russia. The tragic way in which all of the children, the wider family, the royal family, were, were executed by the, the 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 new the communists that had arisen. And in a sense, this is the, the devil's war. This explains why humankind is in such tragic, brutalized condition. That there is a spiritual war, and in a sense, we are. We're almost like collateral damage. You know that that expression where it's certainly used in modern warfare where a bomb is meant to harm that person and unfortunately also kills all these other people. There's a sense in which that's the picture that we're getting, that the devil loves to come in and bring harm to people because in that sense he's making war against God. This is how Jesus puts it in in John 10.10. He says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy he says I came that they may have life and have it abundantly and you can sense how on the one hand there's Christ in all his compassion and benevolence and desire to bless us and cause us to experience a flourishing life and he says listen this is, the, this is what happens when you're outside of my protection you're vulnerable to the stealing the killing and the destroying and this is why I think we see so much of this around us and even in our own lives This man, he says, we're cutting himself with stones. And people are in a pit often of self-harm, aren't they? You think about people who live reckless lives, maybe true of you, where your own safety becomes a secondary issue. You think about people who massively overindulge, and so their life becomes cheap. Or people who do the opposite, who deliberately neglect their own body. As a form of self-harm, you think about how it's so common these days for people to abuse substances, how people overwork, even, I think, is a form of self-harm. People literally work themselves to death, don't they? And ultimately, of course, the the, the, most, the saddest end to this is when we see people committing suicide. This happens obviously among Jesus' own disciples when Judas is so racked with guilt so tormented of mind that he hangs himself after betraying Jesus to the authorities and seeing Jesus crucified. And look I know this isn't a pretty picture that we're painting here. Friends, we have to wake up to the reality of what sin and evil is doing not just in the world around us even in our own lives sometimes. Now, I want us to read on in the story because, of course, it doesn't end there. I mean, we need to confront the power of Jesus at work here. Look at verse 6. It says, When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. I want us to think about the power of Jesus and what he wants to do in our lives, but before we, have, before we can get there, we need to talk about these pigs, don't we? Partly because I know that you guys are mainly millennials, and that the angst in this room, the levels of angst are rising. Uh, when I was a kid, the, the, the movies often used to end with a line that said that no animal has been harmed in the making of this movie. And of course, CGI these days has made that redundant, but there's a sense in which that Look, Lots of animals were harmed in the, in, the, in the making of this story and the reality that took place that day. And I just want to give you a couple of brief explainers for that before we consider what, what Jesus did in the man's life. The first is this. I think Jesus is giving a most vivid demonstration of the fact that one man's life is worth, is, is of inestimable worth to him. Because God does love animal life. He created it. But it's secondary to just rescuing this one man. That's one thing. Another thing you can say about this story, and you need a little bit of context here, was that, as you know, the pigs are unclean animals for the Jews. So why were there, why was there such massive, massive herds of pigs being, uh, I don't know if herd is the right word for a pig, but um, the collective noun for pigs being raised here. And the answer that the commentators think is they were probably being bred to sell to the Roman armies, the occupying armies. So not only were, were these Likely Jewish people looking after unclean animals, but also in some way propping up the, the, uh, the occupying powers. And so Jesus is making some kind of statement here, I think. though, We don't really get any explanation in the passage. And so we just need to put that behind us for a second and, uh, and move on and think about, think about what is happening here between this man and Jesus himself. I said to you earlier that the, the presence of Jesus exposes and flushes out evil, brings it into the open. And suddenly there's this kind of encounter between this man with these, this oppression of demonic spirits and Christ himself who's coming to, bring, to break his spiritual shackles uh, and not just bring him a physical help. And what you see here, whenever Christ comes in to bring help, you see a kind of contradictory reaction. So on the one hand, there's, there's a repulsion and fear. To the power of Jesus. And you can see that even here. There's fear in the man. And fear that's elicited by the work of the evil spirits in him. And friends, this is not so uncommon today. It's amazing how so many many things can be debated. But when you bring Christianity into the room. The emotional uh, tension can rise, can't it? People feel an irrational anger and hostility to the name of Jesus often. And you see this in the world at large and how there is so much widespread, tragic persecution of Christians all over this, this planet. And a lot of the time, it's, it's entirely undeserved. Christians generally are a very benevolent presence in society. So why the hostility? And I think there are spiritual things that explain this. Jesus is a threat, isn't he? And it may be something that you've experienced in yourself. Sometimes you can, you know, I'm speaking particularly to those of you who are not Christian, but I know also that Christians sometimes go through these moments where there can be a strong desire to run away. And, you know, you see this man pleading with Jesus, or the, 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 the demons really, but don't, don't torment us. People literally sometimes run out of churches or they experience that battle about whether they should come. You know, Christians who know that they're living on the fence, as it were, living a double life, living in a place of compromise, will experience something of a a deep inner turmoil and even sometimes a a desire to run away from Jesus. And you're getting that, that. That's one reaction here. There's another reaction, though, which is the kind of the attraction, the draw to Christ. And uh, you can see this, how even as this man is pleading with Jesus, he's also coming up and kind of almost like bowing before him in the presence of the clean power that is Jesus Christ. And how the demons through the man address Jesus correctly, son of the most high God. It's one of the fascinating things you see in the Gospels is that the demons always know exactly who Jesus is, even though no one else does. And they always give him the correct title because they cannot but do that. And so, whilst there's a repulsion to the power of Christ and a threat imposed by his presence, there's also the draw to his clean power. I've heard many stories, by the way, of Christians having encounters with people who are deeply into the occult, witches, and those into um, spiritual practices, who sometimes, in encountering the Christian, will remark, there's a there's Wow, I see something about you. There's an aura around you, a clean power around you. The next question is, well, why don't you come over here then? Across sides, you know, come from the dark side. But, the, but there is something about Jesus that is both... And here's my point. You can experience the two things mixed together. But there's both a repulsion and a threat, but there's also the draw and the attraction of Christ and his power. And you ask the question, Why? And I think it's because there's a war inside of us and we're seeing it in this man and and you will have experienced this in your own life. You are drawn in different directions. On the one hand you're pulled towards sin, toward independence, and of course towards the darkness. Because it is it is to live in darkness is is to live out of Christ's light. But the other hand you're drawn to his purity to the desire to surrender your life and drawn to his light. Now, how on earth does that tension get resolved in the spirit, in your spirit? And I think part of the answer is to understand this paradoxical truth that freedom only comes through surrender. Because when people are experiencing that battle of mind, of encounter with Jesus and being both drawn to him but also desiring to run away from him. The reason we want to run is because we feel that, that coming under Jesus' authority is in some way inhibiting our free expression of who we are. But to walk away from him is, is, and to experience autonomy is freedom. What the Bible shows you is that that isn't a true account of what's really going on in your life. It's not the case that there is at the one end the choice to surrender to Jesus, at the other end the choice to surrender to dark forces, and in the middle there's just you on neutral ground doing whatever the heck you want with your life. Jesus paints, says no, there's only two options. You're either submitting to him and his will and authority over you, or you're submitting to the devil's will. Which sounds bizarre, doesn't it? But you think the devil is, by definition, wanting people to rebel against God. So whenever we're not submitting to Christ, we're submitting to him instead. And as I told you, the road where that takes you is terrifying. And this man exhibits it. Now, what does Jesus want to do? I think the answer is he wants to bring true freedom. Not just to this man, but to all of us. And I want to define freedom for you in this way. Freedom is the restoration of sanity. To see things as they really are. When this man is freed from the oppression he is experiencing, it says of him a little later that he was clothed and in his right mind. He had been naked, he'd been in torment, covered, lashed with lacerations and an absolute horror to look at. But having experienced the power of Christ, it says he is clothed and in his right mind. And in a sense, what the Bible says is that the difference between rebellion against God and surrender to him is the difference between insanity and sanity. Because there is nothing more unreasonable, nothing more irrational, nothing more crazy than to rebel against the God who made you. It's a refusal to live with reality, which is what insanity really means, right? Whereas, the invitation to freedom and to, through submission to Jesus. is shown in the scriptures to be like this man clothed in his right mind. Because it's, it's the bringing back of sanity and of order into your thinking. And into your whole life. That the way you live is in harmony with the will of the Lord who, cre- who created you. That there's alignment between his will and yours. Words in the scriptures that depict this this flourishing, are words like wisdom. What does the Bible say? It says that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. In other words, you cannot be a wise and sane person unless you live under a proper reverence for the God who made you. Or another word that's used is the word shalom, the word peace, which is a kind of well-being that's described on every dimension of your existence. you become firstly at peace with God himself. Then you're at peace with those people around you and also you're at peace with yourself at long last. This is the sweetness of freedom and of sanity that Christ wants to bring into your felt experience on a day-to-day basis. I want us to think about this last bit. Christ's ultimate purposes for you in these last verses. Let's read from verse 14. It says, The herdsmen fled and told it in the city. So this is the pig's Uh, The pig owners, they fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. It's that same reaction we saw on the sea, on the lake. They're afraid. It says, and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. He wanted to join Jesus' company of disciples and follow him. It says, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, which was the region, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Now, as this story comes to a close, there are two strange twists. The one is that Jesus himself gets rejected by the community that he's just arrived to come and preach to. And I, I think that's an odd twist in the story because, you know, he's come and helped this man. And the thanks he gets is, uh, of course, he, he didn't help the, the herdsmen so much. They the, lost their pigs. But he helps the man. And the thanks he gets is, is, is a strong request to leave immediately and do not return. And um, some of you, by the way, I know this is your story, (laughs) that when you you went from whatever life you were in before and you came to Jesus and and Jesus changed your life, the first thing you encountered from friends and family was confusion and sometimes a little bit of fear, sometimes a bit of anger, and sometimes some rejection thrown in as well. And it it doesn't seem to make sense, does it? Because nothing... That's happened to you is bad. It's been entirely good. But it, it's viewed as a, a, a threat in some way, isn't it? And this is an odd thing, but it's, it's what happens. Jesus gets rejected by this community straight away. They haven't even heard what he has to say. And I think that's very sad. I think it's a scary thing when people shut down the dialogue and don't listen to what does Jesus have to say. Don't really weigh up whether he's the Lord that he claims to be. But the second strange thing about this, how this story ends is that he, he turns this new convert, this man, into a missionary straight away. He goes from being the crazy guy in the tombs to being the chief preacher in the region overnight, which is fascinating, right? And I think this is massively important for this reason. It shows you God's ultimate purpose for you it's not just to make you well, though that is good in and of itself. But Christ wants to do more than just make you well. He wants to equip you and charge you with purpose and give your life a sense of dignity and ultimate meaning while you're here on earth. Why this man? Why did Jesus choose him? He could have sent any number of other people who spent more time with him, for one thing, knew a little bit more about what he taught. And I think, I think the two weird things are related I think the fact that Jesus has just been rejected from the region means that Jesus has no no way in. And he doesn't force himself on people. But he sees in this man an opportunity, doesn't he? And it's the same thing he sees through you. You can think of it in different ways. Think of it like this. That there are relationships that only you can access. People in your life who you are the only mouthpiece for the gospel. That is a sobering thought when you think about it. Friends and family who might never come to know about what Jesus' power is except through you. And that was this man's story. Jesus was not allowed to preach but this man could tell the story. Another way you could think of it is that there are languages that only you can speak. I don't necessarily mean literal languages. So that it may be true that you have another tongue and you can go and tell people about Jesus in a different tongue. But I mean, there are people who, who speak certain languages that only you can reach. It may be class or culture divisions. Someone who would not want to listen to me, but who will listen to you. Or think of it this way. There's a sphere of influence that God has given you alone. Now and into your future. As you go through life, you find that there are connections all over the place and people that you have an opportunity to speak to and to influence in all kinds of ways, whether it's in work or friendships. And as you move through life, Christ is interested in and actually sovereignly ordains that sphere of influence, puts you there for a reason. And some of that is about the gospel. There are other things as well at work. God wants to use you in all kinds of ways. But some of it is about being a messenger. So how does Christ want to use you? Well, one thing may be just to tell your story. Isn't that what he tells this man? He says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. I love that. This guy knew very little about the theology of Jesus Christ. (laughs) But what he did know was what Jesus had done. And in our day and age, that seems to me an incredibly important thing. How potent it is to tell your story. Because there's one thing our culture doesn't argue with, and that's your personal narrative. Even if they want to argue with your truth claims. no No one will cross your story, will they? If it's true for you. Some of you are thinking, well, I don't have a story. I grew up in... A Christian home, believed in Jesus when I was four years old, and um, it's not very exciting. There wasn't much drug, sex, rock and roll, and to glamorize. Some, I've known some people try and make that stuff up just to <laughs> make it a little bit more interesting. But um, listen, your story isn't just you. It's also your heritage. You know, when I think about my story, I, I don't just think about me. I think about what God did in my parents' lives. I think about how, you know, particularly think about my dad and how God rescued him from very, very unlikely circumstances. In an abusive home, having experienced divorce at a young age and abject poverty in a slum in Liverpool and how God put on his side two friends who told him the gospel at school. One of them told him he was going to hell, one of them told him they could believe in Jesus and go to heaven and it got to him. (laughs) And he went to hear Billy Graham preach via relay. So kind of like satellite relay. Except I don't know if they had satellites in those days. We're talking ancient history here. <laughs> but um, they were relaying Billy Graham preach. To, uh, in, and it was being shown in a hall in Liverpool. And he gave his life to Jesus at the age of 14. And everything changed from then on. And I, that's, that's part of my story. It Maybe it's true for you. Go and tell people how much the Lord has done for you. The amazing thing about the, that, that, that strikes me about the way this story concludes is that Jesus wants to use us. That's the point. How precious. He doesn't just want to fix you up, as wonderful as that is. He also wants to give you the dignity of being part of his mission. And of actually, in a sense, relying upon you to do his work. And I can think of no greater privilege on earth than that. So as I close, I think there's two kinds of people in this room. There are those who are in the midst of the battle. And maybe some of what I described in terms of the effects of sin in your life and of of spiritual even oppression, you recognize how your choices isolate or how you experience mental torment or how... It may lead you to some kind of self hatred, self loathing, and even self harm. And Christ is calling you to come and bow. Maybe the case that you've been a Christian for years. I've known Christians slip back into this stuff, and it's all too common. Christ is telling you, listen, I have a clean power. I want to come and change your life. But it begins with repentance, it begins with surrender. Others of you can say that you are clothed and in your right mind. And the Lord maybe just wants to bring you a challenge. Do not take that for granted. Think about what God has rescued you from. What he prevented in your life. And understand that you are here for a purpose. And he wants to use you. Amen? Amen. Why don't you bow your heads. Let's pray together. Father, we we come before you. We thank you that Lord Jesus, you're the Lord over all things. And we want to surrender ourselves to you now. Pray, Spirit, come. Help us to have dealings with you in a way that's appropriate for where we're at this morning. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.